Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today on this edition of Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld will begin an exciting new five-week series focused on the book of Romans entitled The Heart of the Gospel. We'll be examining this book that has so significantly and profoundly impacted the lives of some of history's greatest theological minds. Now let's begin with our introduction to Romans with Dr. John Neufeld. It was September of 386 A.D. It's a brilliant young professor who sat weeping under a fig tree in the garden of a friend in the city of Milan in Italy. This young professor had led a very sensuous life. He had loved the party life. He was well-versed in pagan philosophies. He was far from God. His mother was a Christian woman named Monica, and she had prayed daily for the conversion of her son, but it seemed that God simply was not answering her prayers. And in her desperation, she would visit the Bishop of Milan. He was a very famous Christian. He still remembered to this day. The man's name was Ambrose. And Ambrose would console Monica and he would say, someday God's going to convert your son and use his profound intellect for his kingdom. After all, Ambrose would say, God's sovereign and your son's present rejection of Christ will be no barrier to God. And so Monica took courage and kept on praying while her son gave himself over to every form of sexual perversion and carried on with his fascination with pagan philosophies. But on this day in September of 386, garden of his friend, the young professor was particularly distressed. His life seemed meaningless. It was all spent in vain. Some kids happened to be playing in a nearby house and, and he could hear their voices, perhaps from an open window. They must have been playing a game which included either a song or some kind of a refrain uh, because he heard it. It was either a boy or a girl repeating over and over again a phrase in Latin, tole lege, tole lege. It simply means take up and read, take up and read. Well, the young professor was preoccupied, but slowly the refrain began to penetrate his consciousness. And in his own words, he thought this was a command somehow that came from God. He had been reading Paul's letter to the Romans and hearing that refrain, take up and read, he opened Romans at random. And the first verse that greeted his eyes was Romans 13, 13 to 14. Here's what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, in his own words, that young professor said, I wished nor needed to read further. And thinking about what was right and what was wrong, this professor wrote, all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. A light of relief flooded into my heart. That young professor was seized with an inner sense of conviction for his own sin as the Holy Spirit used these words to penetrate his heart. That young professor's name was Aurelius Augustine. He later became known as St. Augustine of Hippo, the Bishop of North Africa, and reading that short passage from Romans led him to repentance and faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior and the deliverer from the power of the flesh. And Augustine became what many consider to be the greatest theologian for the next thousand years and whose thoughts have still profoundly impacted many people today. And all of this began with his own study of Romans and then two small verses from that life-transforming book, the book of Romans. Just over a thousand years later, there was another young man, and this young man was a monk who served in an Augustinian cloister in the city of Wittenberg in Germany, and he was also deeply impacted by the book of Romans. 
Martin Luther, as a young professor and a priest in the seminary of Wittenberg, was given the privilege of teaching both Romans and Psalms. I say it was a great privilege, for in his day, most priests had never read a single word from the Bible. In fact, they were forbidden from reading the Bible. And he was given the privilege of studying in the original languages. But all was not well. He was tortured in his own sense of sin and haunted by the phrase he found in Romans, the righteousness of God. And so Luther would sit for hours before an open Bible struggling with the meaning of Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that passage just didn't seem to make sense to him. See, the church had taught him that the phrase, the righteousness of God, always referred to God's punishing justice. God would punish sinners. But how could that be right? Because, well, it made no sense. Right there in Romans, the righteousness of God was called the gospel, the good news. Well, how can the righteousness of God be good news to any sinner? And then Luther considered the possibility that this righteousness of God might be part of the message of the cross, that in the cross, God forgave the sinner who believes and so regards the sinner as righteous so that sinners could live before God. But how could that be possible? And then Luther considered the evidence from Romans 3, 25 to 26. There, speaking of Jesus and his cross, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, I know, I know that sentence sounds like a mouthful, but in the series on Romans that we're about to do, we're going to spend a great deal of time understanding that important verse. But for Luther, when he understood that verse, his world just changed. Here's what he wrote about himself before he understood the verse. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he, that is God, was placated by my satisfaction, or what he meant is by my best efforts. I did not love, yes, I hated, he said, the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin should be lost, God adds pain to pain by the gospel threatening us with terrible wrath. But as much as his emotions raged inside of him. Luther persisted in trying to understand what was written in Romans. After studying and restudying the passage, he began to see from Romans 3 that it explained how God could remove sin and still be the just and righteous God. Now listen now what Luther wrote after he understood. He says, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. See, and with that, the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation was born. With that would come a sure understanding that salvation was by faith and by faith alone. The church would rediscover that we're not saved by works, but by faith. As Luther would cry out in Latin, sola fide, 
faith alone. See, what he meant is this, not works, not the sacraments, not the merits of the saints or the treasury of merits found in the church, not even achieving our own righteousness. No, by faith in Christ's righteousness. God had again used the book of Romans, the key to transform and give direction to his church. Well, 200 years later, there was a a young priest from the Church of England, the Anglican Church. He was just as confused as Luther had been about the true nature of salvation. He'd been a missionary from England to the Americas and called by his church to work at converting the American Indians. And on the ship bound for America, this young man encountered a group of German Christians called Moravian Brethren. They took interest in the young man, and one of them asked him why he was going to America. And he said to convert the Indians, and to which this Moravian brethren man asked him, but who will convert you? And this young man found no inner peace, and finally he returned home to England, a dejected young man. But then at home in England, something happened. It was a Wednesday evening. It was May 24th, 1738, and he wrote the following words in his diary. He said, I went very unwillingly to a society, and a society, by the way, is uh, simply a Bible study. I went very unwillingly to a Bible study in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, that young man's name was John Wesley, and he became a great evangelist and a revivalist and a church planter. In fact, entire volumes, both from a Christian and a secular perspective, have been written about England before and after John Wesley. See, Wesley turned England back to Christ in his day. Wesleyan revivals prevented a French-style revolution from happening in England. Wesleyan revivals spilled over to North America and changed this continent as well and profoundly awakened a world missionary movement which began in the 1700s, the book of Romans had simply struck again. And it's our prayer that as we study this book, we'll find it striking our hearts in our day. What a wonderful introduction to the profound impact the book of Romans had on such incredible men. The Word of God is certainly alive and well, stirring and transforming the hearts of men and women today and throughout history. And after the break, Dr. Neufeld will share his conviction that the book of Romans is a clarion call for our generation to hear the gospel once again. Thanks for listening today. You know, every day it's our mission to also be a clarion call, to connect people to the Bible and see its truth change lives. God's Word changes things. And later in the program today, I want to share some words of encouragement we received from Fiona. And remember, throughout the entire month of February, we're offering to send you as our gift Dr. Neufeld's series on the book of Philemon, an alternative lifestyle that you heard just this past week. Call us today to receive your free CD series at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. You know, the book of Romans has again and again profoundly changed the church and the world. This book, the book of Romans, is perhaps the most difficult in the Bible to understand. 
It's the most doctrinal of all the Bible books. And I fear, especially in our culture, where our thoughts are so often reduced to tweets and where many of our views are shaped by the visual media, that few today have the stomach for Christian doctrine. Yet John Chrysostom, a man who lived in the fifth century, whom many consider to have been the greatest preacher in the history of Christian preaching, would have a young man come to his office once every week and read him the entire book of Romans in one sitting. It was this book that became the impetus of his powerful preaching ministry. So why study this most doctrinal book in the Bible? Well, I'm going to suggest two reasons. Here's the first. It has been used by God to affect the greatest revivals and reformations in the history of the church. Its message has thundered with power time and again and has changed people in whole nations and the church of Jesus Christ. This book is a clarion call to hear the gospel again. It's my belief that we have lost it again in our day. And it's also my belief that this book is exactly what we need today. I want us to study Romans in the hope that God might use it in our day as he has in the past. So why study this difficult and doctrinal book? Well, not only has it been used by God to effect great revivals, but secondly, it is the remedy for a confusing world of lies, half-truths, and errors about God. See, we live in a society that has divorced itself from divine revelation. Our society, and Christians, of course, are a part of this, we've come to worship the God of subjectivism. Here's what I mean by that. Many people believe that human opinions and human experiences and human wants and longings and even human urges, and often here we put in even human sexual urges, that these form the center of God's message to us. And because of that, so many would-be Christians in North America have a concept of God that ranges from what Stuart Briscoe once called the outright bizarre to the downright blasphemous. See, many today expect to be happy and comfortable, popular, wealthy, and even famous. And any shortage of these commodities leads many of us to howls of pain. I mean, we can't conceive of a God that doesn't give us whatever we want. And the idea of a gospel, as Romans 1.17 puts it, that reveals the righteousness of God, well, that's so shocking to many that it simply leaves us stunned. We don't understand God or his gospel. Well, secondly, we also live in a society that lacks an understanding of sin. You know, even Christians are guilty of this. See, we often understand our problems entirely in psychological terms. We think our problem is that, well, we're repressed or we have a poor self-esteem or we've had an unhappy childhood and maybe we've got bad parents and we suffer from pressures from our peer group or from our society. And to that, we all come to this conclusion, we're all victims. But let me crack open the door of Romans just a little bit. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, none is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You want to hear what God says? Because his perspective is so different from ours. He says our problem is sin. And more, have you noticed that we tend to be hard on the sins of others? but we're rather easy on our own, blaming factors outside of ourselves for who we are and renaming our own sins as, well, you've done it and I've done it, mistakes. And so some even think that what God wants is that we simply believe in ourselves. I mean, it's incredible. But we also live in a society that relies on artificial help for the problems of living. 
You know, in Paul's day, the thought was that a stricter reliance on the law would make you more righteous and bring you nearer to God. But Paul attacks that idea. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 8, he writes, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. See, Paul saw that the law, rather than helping us be more righteous, only excited our tendency to sin. The law launched us into greater rebellion than we ever thought possible. I mean, tell someone they can't do something, and that negative command becomes an unstoppable catalyst for a greater tendency to sin than they ever thought possible. That's the nature of sin that lives in us. So here's a good question. What can be done for the human condition? I mean, what is needed is not self-help. I mean, you want to say, Lord, help us from all the self-helpers in this world. We've been self-helped to death. What we need is not self-help, but God's help. We need help from the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8.10, Paul writes these words, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. See, we're all divorced from God. None of us understands the insidious nature of indwelling sin. We rely on self-help. And that's why we don't understand that faith is trusting not in self, but in God. In my years as a pastor, I've seen that the key issue of all human problems is that we're lacking in the confidence that comes by relying completely on God. And until you and I are released from the lies and the half-truths and errors about both who God is and who we are, these errors that are running around in our hearts and our heads, until we are confronted by the truth— that we're a whole awful lot more sinful than we had ever imagined. And until we see that our only hope lies not in ourselves, but in the gospel, in the good news about what Christ did on our behalf, if we don't see that, we'll never be set free. We'll never be right with God. So why study this book? Because it will give you good news, news that finally and ultimately sets you free and brings you peace with God, real lasting peace. See, this is a powerful book. It will transform you and I, and perhaps not only you, but everyone else around you as well. So in the next five weeks, we'll only have time to study the first four chapters of the 16 chapters that make up this book. We're going to call these four chapters the heart of the gospel. In other words, these first four chapters of Romans form the bedrock of our faith. They teach and answer some of the most fundamental questions we can have. Questions like, is it really true that I'm sinful? And then, just how sinful am I? I mean, you and I might say, oh, I see people, Christians and not Christians, they're doing both good things and bad things. Can it really be that God sees me as overwhelmingly, helplessly sinful, or am I only sometimes sinful? I mean, so much depends on how we answer that question. Well, here's another question. Is it really true that the wrath of God is being revealed against all sinful people? I thought God was only love. Is he actually so angry that we might describe him as dreadfully provoked? Or here's another question. Is it really true that the sin question has been completely dealt with in Christ? And there's absolutely nothing I can add to his completed work. Should I do no more than admire the work of Christ, thank him for it, and believe every promise that comes from that? Is that all I need really to do? I mean, really. Uh, We're going to discover and we're going to rediscover from Romans that our sins actually do present us with an uncrossable barrier. We can't get to God on our own. 
God has taken the initiative. He sent his son who on the cross became our propitiation. Yep, that's a $3 word, our wrath-bearing sacrifice. And it's only through Christ and his merits that any human being can ever be presented whole before God. I love the words of Scottish pastor David Dixon. He was on his deathbed and where he was being asked about his confidence because he would soon stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he simply stated this. He said, I've taken all my good deeds and all my bad, and I've thrown everything I have done on a heap before the Lord, and I've fled from both, knowing that no deed of mine has any lasting value at all. And I've run to the Lord Jesus Christ for my confidence, and in him I have sweet peace. See, my prayer is that all of us will have the same confidence as we read through this book. Heavenly Father, I pray, help each one of us to find great interest in what we read, and may these words transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. John, this has been a great introduction to the Book of Romans. Uh, And it's all about really theology and doctrine, but you know, those can be really frightening words uh, for for us lay people. How can you uh, sort of uh, cast away some of those fears for us? Yeah, I know that many of us have this idea that theology must be something that's done in uh, some kind of an academy somewhere among people who have, you know, PhD behind their names. But I think theology, rightly understood, is meant for the common person. It teaches us the doctrine of God, teaches us uh, what God wants, who he is, who we are, how we should respond to him. I mean, it's about life. I mean, I, I, I wish I could communicate that that word isn't actually a stuffy word, but an exciting word and not even a complicated word. So, John, moving on from here, what are some of the highlights that we can look forward to in the next week? Yeah, I think this week we're going to do a lot more introduction to Romans, maybe more than some people wanted, but we're going to continue to do it. We make sure that we understand the book well before we understand what we're actually reading. Um, And I think the highlight to look forward to is that we're really going to find out who God is and who we are. Well, we're anticipating great things in the week ahead. Thanks so much, Dr. Neufeld. The book of Romans is relevant to us today because it focuses on the real issue of our sin. We live in a broken world destroyed by sin, where many people have turned away from God, believing they are somehow better off without Him. I know that the next several weeks will not only stir you and encourage you in your walk with Jesus, but through the careful study of Paul's words, you'll discover the power over a life of sin. Make sure to join us tomorrow, and remember, you can hear the program anytime or recommend it to someone else by listening at backtothebible.ca. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to teaching God's Word and seeing lives changed, and God has been at work. We're encouraged and humbled when people share with us how this program has had an impact upon their spiritual journey. Fiona emailed us to say, Over the years, I've enjoyed the ministry of Back to the Bible. I'm so glad you're ministering to our generation with solid biblical teaching. It's been such a blessing. If this program is playing a part in your walk with Jesus, let us know. Give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or write us by emailing info at backtothebible.ca. And thank you to everyone who sent such gracious notes and emails of welcome to Dr. Neufeld. 
We have begun a great new journey, and we thank you for being a part. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.